You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, and welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Sally. And I'm Zach. And this is episode five of season two. And the title of this episode is the one where we talk about science, science, science. And that is because we are talking to three guests today, all of which are our contributors, and each of whom is going to talk to us about some aspect related to science. Right. So we've got Jordan, who's going to talk to us about a new movie released recently, and then Will, who's going to talk to us about the possible existence of alien life. And finally, we'll talk to Joshua, who's going to talk to us about a new class of vitamins or supplements or drugs, depending on how you look at it, called nootropics. Yeah, and if you don't know what that means, we didn't either before we talked to him. <laughs> but you will if you listen to this podcast. So sit down and get ready for a good one because it's all coming up. With three guests, we're going to get right to it. So without further ado, here's the first. Our contributor, Jordan, by now a very familiar voice on this podcast, is going to talk to us about this movie. I guarantee you that at some point, everything's going to go south on you. Ready? And you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Commander, Mark is dead. We have to go. Now you can either accept that, or you can get to work. This will come as quite a shock to my crewmates and to NASA and to the entire world, but I'm still alive. All right, we're joined now by Jordan Short, who's going to talk with us about the new movie, The Martian. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So The Martian, directed and produced by Ridley Scott, was released in U U.S. theaters on October 2nd, and it tells the story of a... U.S. astronaut who is stranded on Mars. The U.S. astronauts played by Matt Damon, and the movie features a pretty star-studded cast. So besides Damon, we have Jessica Chastain of Zero Dark Thirty fame. Also, uh, Michael Pena, who's uh, from Shooter, and Donald Glover from the TV show Community, and Jeff Daniels uh, of The Newsroom and many other classics. So Crazy. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's only a few. There are other names that you'd recognize, but it's a pretty impressive uh, lineup. Uh, and a pretty impressive film. So, Jordan, uh, I'll turn to you right now. Give us 30 seconds what you think of this show or this movie. Uh, would you recommend it? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I will do that. I, I'd love to give a little kind of, you know, 10-second spiel about Ridley Scott here. Oh, yeah. No, let's – yeah, let's pause pause my question. Let's talk about Ridley Scott. Sweet. Yeah, I mean I, I feel like every movie um, – you, you can't properly critique it without – realizing who the director and producer are and kind of what they have done previously, right? Yeah, because I mean, of... what they've done previously helps you understand what they're trying to do now. I mean, you know, you look at, I think of someone like Aaron Sorkin, right? And so when you watch the new Steve Jobs biopic that Aaron Sorkin has done, you understand what he's done in the West Wing and the newsroom, and you get you get the, you get get a feel for where he's coming from and the way he does that, the sort of technical storytelling of human achievement. So oh, yeah, I'm, I'm tracking. Yeah, so... Uh, Ridley Scott, for those of you who aren't familiar, um, he directed Alien in 1979 and uh, a bunch of movies um, since then. But but also he did Prometheus in 2012. And I, I mentioned those two specifically because um, they are kind of in the same thematic realm as uh, The Martian. Now, you know, whereas... Alien and Prometheus are science fiction, I would consider The Martian more like science practicum. In the sense of uh, Alien, Prometheus, they were kind of outlandish and out there. Kind of like his Blade Runner? Kind of like Blade Runner. My gosh, I love Blade Runner. <laughs> um, but but The Martian is, is more... Uh, it, it seems like it's reality in the way that it's laid out. Um, and, and that isn't to say that The Martian is boring. On the contrary, it, it is gripping storytelling. But yeah, it's a little different from Ridley Scott's previous 
but I think I think this is a perfect segue into my thoughts on the film. I mean, it, it's not boring. It's actually quite exciting. You would think a movie that's kind of grounded in science would be bogged down by uh, exposition, which is just a term for when um, basically characters in a movie explain what's happening to you without showing it to you. <laughs> um, and that can be the worst when, when, a, when a movie spends too much time doing that. Right, just uh, too invested the, in the technical know-how and they forget to tell the story. Right, right, exactly. You know, so like a general could be standing around uh, and being like, oh, so the uh, the other army is advancing towards such and such and such and such and, and we are stressed out about it because <laughs> we have, you know, way less troops than they do when a good movie should should really... Show, show you that those happening. Things. Yeah, yeah exactly. it feels condescending when they're doing so much explaining. Yeah, it's totally condescending. Absolutely, um, and I think I think The Martian avoids that uh, by by showing you a lot, but also when there is a little a little bit of exposition that needs to be done, it occurs in a very natural way uh, through basically Matt Damon's character having a. Uh, basically a captain's log, if you will, where he has to kind of like a video diary where he has to kind of uh, record what's happening. You know, I was and, disappointed, though, that he does not use star dates for his captain's log. <laughs> captain's log, you know, and, and use use like the um, William Shatner voice. Right, that exactly. would be awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely obligatory. <laughs> yeah, obligatory for sure. Um, I, You know, you mentioned the amazing cast. The cast kills it. Like... Even the minor bit parts, um, Donald Glover plays a NASA kind of <laughs> geeky scientist, like more geeky than the others. Like he's kind of like Which a is mad... amazing if you know yeah. anything about his character from Community playing, you know, Donald Glover playing a NASA, NASA astrodynamicist is, is awesome. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. And and he knocks it out of the park. Um, and, and everyone in this is just is beautiful. And, and also, I think. One thing, sometimes when you have really dynamic actors that you're familiar with from other works of art, sometimes <laughs> they don't blend into their, or they don't become their character, I right. should say. Right, absolutely. Uh, but I felt like I felt like pretty much all the characters, like the, the, the actors disappeared into their characters, I think. So it does not feel, as you're watching the movie, like Jason Bourne is stranded on Mars. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I mean, I do have a tough time with like Jeff. um, Jeff Daniels. Jeff Daniels. Sorry. Thank you. Sometimes I just think he's like, I forget about Dumb and Dumber. And then I just see him as the dude from the newsroom. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was even watching um, an interview with him on the Steve Jobs movie. And I just felt like I was watching whatever his name is in the newsroom because he has the same mannerisms and I don't know it's that's kind of hard (laughs) it is hard yeah all right so you mentioned that this movie is I think you said scientifically grounded Uh, another one that comes to mind is interstellar and Christopher Nolan went to great lengths to try to make that one scientifically accurate but how would you compare the two uh yeah good good question I it's hard to compare the two I think um, a similarity is that they both tug at the heartstrings. They're, they don't get lost in the grandiosity of space. They keep everything focused. They keep the viewer focused to what really matters. And I think that's a beautiful similarity. I think um, Interstellar owes much more of its kind of feel and style to... Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, it's way, way more kind of weird and out there. Whereas I feel like The Martian is... Uh, Much more of a scientific possibility. Totally. Like people on the internet, like on Twitter and stuff, were freaking out. They're like, oh, is this based on a true story? Like it has that feel. Whereas I don't think you could ever walk away from Interstellar thinking, oh, this actually happened. Um but but some people were walking away from the theater after viewing The Martian, and and wondering if it was based on a true story. So yeah, when I saw Interstellar, I I just kind of started to tune out in those last few scenes. The last few hours of the massively long <laughs> film. Yeah, uh, it was just too out there for me. So I kind of appreciate that 
leaving a movie and wondering, wow, is that, was that real? And I did read a review of The Martian by an ex-astronaut, and he said that there were, yeah, sure, some technical details that were off, but in general, it was pretty well put together. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so here's my take on it. Um, the first thing is, it seems like a, a kind of a modern retelling of Apollo 13, right? Of course, Apollo 13 is actually a doc, almost a documentary or a real life retell, a, sorry, a retelling of a real life event. Obviously, the Martian's not that, but it feels like the Apollo 13 story arc, uh, you know, 40, 50 years past Apollo 13. So it has much more real feel in that regard. Mm-hmm. But but Interstellar, like like Sally was saying. At the end of the movie, you know, you have Matthew, you know, spoiler alert here, but you have Matthew McConaughey flying around in this like four dimensional, you know, set of bookcases and he's locked in this and it just kind of lost all the movie lost all credibility for me at that point. But even before that, um, what they're doing is so outside the realm of scientific possibility now. And yet they were able to achieve it while the earth was turning into a giant dust bowl and thousands of people had died from conditions that were deteriorating on earth. So kind of strange there. On the other hand, The Martian does seem like a movie that takes advantage of scientific realities uh, and real real possibilities in terms of technological progress over the next 20 years. And so it seems to be a much more uh, kind of ex- explicative, explicative, <laughs> a much more expletive, <laughs> a better retelling of the art of the possible is what I'm, t- is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's well, it's, it's interesting because I, I, um, I think, and and I love Christopher Nolan, um, but I feel like Interstellar got away from him a little bit. There are tons of awesome things that happen in that movie, and I love it. But I feel like there are moments where it does get bogged down in exposition, um, and and you're just like, wait, what? And your brain has a hard time wrapping, or at least mine did. My brain had a hard time yeah. wrapping itself around <laughs> some of the elements in it. And it's almost like as if, okay, so you have a crazy, like on one end of the spectrum is like Star Wars, which is just total fiction, right? Um, But they, George Lucas decided to drop us into the world and not worry about explaining too much. Right. At least in the the first three movies. Um, Because it was just like, yeah, this is reality. And I've created this reality and just go for the ride. And I think you either have to drop people into a, a movie and and let them go for the ride without having to try to explain away too many things, or you make it super realistic and and easy to to grasp. Right. Um, so besides yeah. telling us that the astronaut that Matt Damon plays is really smart and can get himself out of this pickle as well as the other NASA astronauts what what do you think this movie is saying what is it trying to tell us if is it is it trying to tell us anything i think there is that that robertson crusoe element where it is just entertaining um but but also i think at the heart of it there is this kind of like it's a there's this thread of it's amazing what humans can endure and uh it's amazing what links will go to survive. So it's kind of like that to me is, is kind of what stood out. Yeah, what was interesting to me is the uh, is the part of the movie that focuses on what's going on on Earth. And uh, I, I mean, small spoiler alert here, but basically the, the level of international cooperation that takes place in order to get Matt Damon home safely. Uh, and I thought that was kind of an interesting commentary by Ridley Scott because space is in many ways, an uncharted arena in terms of international cooperation. And the international cooperation that does exist is, you know, throwing a few cosmonauts and a few astronauts on the International Space Station or, you know, dating back to the Apollo Soyuz test projects, sort of these these missions that have both cosmonauts and astronauts on board as a nice nod to international cooperation. But what Ridley Scott portrays is something different. Maybe something we'll see in the future. Maybe that's what he's trying to show us is possible. Yeah, it seems hopeful in that way. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, to see this kind of movie coming from Ridley Scott um, when Prometheus was one of his more recent movies, uh, which which was complete opposite of this, I, I, I felt. And I didn't enjoy it very much. I, I loved Alien a lot, but Prometheus, um, I was so excited for it, and, and I, I didn't enjoy it. 
half as much as I thought it would. So final question here to wrap this up. After you've seen this movie, are you more or less likely to sign up for the Mars One one-way <laughs> mission to colonize the planet of Mars? Um, definitely less likely. <laughs> there's there's no way, you know, there's there's no way. I Space and I, I don't think we'll get along. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. You know, as I was kind of uh, researching a little bit for this segment, I came across the review of The Martian by Manola Dargis from the New York Times, and, and she's the f- chief film critic for The Times, so she's incredible. Yeah, she actually, I think she has a Pulitzer nomination for criticism. Wow. Nice. Yeah, she's impressive. She's an authority. So in her, her last paragraph of the review, uh, I, I just thought this was really beautiful, so I'd like, I'd like to read it verbatim here. Sure. She says, The Martian has sweep but not the vanity that creeps into many large productions, turning them into bloated vehicles for directile, uh, directorial sorry, self-aggrandizement. Mr. Damon's everyman quality, he's our Jimmy Stewart, helps scale the story down. But what makes this epic personal is Mr. Scott's filmmaking, in which every soaring aerial shot of the red planet is answered by the intimate landscape of a face. That's wow. pretty great, right? Yeah, that's Beautiful. really good. That's, I mean, <laughs> Give her a Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and I do love also how she kind of, when she says he's our Jimmy Stewart, that's really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Tom Hanks and probably Matt Damon are, are are maybe close there. I mean, maybe I would give the edge to Tom Hanks, but but yeah. I think, you know, Damon is close. He, he is pretty great. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a movie like Good Will Hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does that well, or even just the the very kind of ordinary character he plays in the cast of Oceans. Yes, you know, yes. like he, he's yes. the one you can relate to. <laughs> yeah, yes. totally. Well, thanks so much for talking to us, Jordan. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jordan. For our listeners, we recommend you see The Martian. It's a great story, as you probably just picked up on from our conversation with Jordan, and we heartily recommend. Jordan, thanks for joining us. It was great to have you on the show. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're here with Will Bryan, who is a postdoctoral associate in mathematics at Baylor University. And Will Bryan, more importantly, is one of our contributors. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be back. And if you heard season one, then you remember Will when he was on with his lovely wife, Caitlin. That's right. So, Will, we just finished a fascinating conversation with Jordan reviewing the movie The Martian starring Matt Damon. And we want to talk to you today about real Martians. Ah, (laughs) <laughs> well, we don't know if there are any yet, um, but the prospect is pretty exciting. Recently, we discovered uh, what appears to be evidence for water on Mars. And the reason that's exciting is because, as far as we understand it, uh, life would probably need water to develop. Uh, no, ma- no matter what form it takes, it, it seems that uh, any form of life that, that we're capable of imagining right now needs water to develop. So the fact that there is water on Mars, water that at one point could have been liquid um, and, and may still cycle through a liquid phase occasionally now, uh, means that there could be somewhere perhaps microbial life on Mars. I think anything bigger than a microbe is probably out of the question at this point, though, sadly. Now, do you think the importance of this discovery is slightly overstated because it sounds like really what was discovered is just one of the necessary but not sufficient conditions for life? Well, yes and no. I think that if our only concern was whether or not there is uh, extraterrestrial life on Mars, then this discovery by itself would not be that big. Uh, But another very important implication of this discovery is that perhaps one day uh, people might be able to colonize Mars. And that is important because uh, our planet may or may not survive the next few thousand years. And it would be good for our species to have a backup plan. So would you volunteer for a Mars mission? I asked Jordan the same question just a few minutes ago, and he said, absolutely not. Absolutely. <laughs> Except my wife wouldn't let me. <laughs> what if you could bring her with you? If I could bring her, I don't know if she'd want to come. <laughs> I, honestly, if, um, if it weren't for the fact that I love my wife and my kids so much, I would absolutely volunteer for a Mars mission. I think that would be... Uh, one of one of the biggest, most exciting adventures I could possibly imagine, but it would be also a very, very long, very difficult journey. What are the best estimates for how long that journey would take? 
Well, it depends on what sort of propulsion technology we have. Um, given current technologies, I think it's supposed to take around eight or nine months. Uh, I'd have to look that up to be sure, but I, I think it's it's somewhere in that neighborhood, somewhere between six to 12 months. Yeah, I couldn't do that because, as Sally knows, anything over two hours for me is a long trip. <laughs> that would be a very long road trip. You get in the car, well, and two hours later, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, are we there yet? <laughs> and, and that's only one way. Right. Oh, I'm not, there's no way I'm going. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have to come back, and in between, you actually have to wait uh, for the planets to become properly aligned again. So if you fly to Mars uh, and you stay for a little while and you try to leave at the wrong time, it might just so happen that the sun is between you and Earth. I certainly do hate it when I start a road trip and the planets are not aligned in the correct way. <laughs> I know. And you're it's just, just, it's just such a bummer. Driving right into the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so that would we, be a bummer. <laughs> so we don't know if there are Martians on Mars, but the Kepler telescope thinks that there might be some sort of extraterrestrials out there, right? Some people think that. Okay. Uh, so the telescope actually does not think <laughs> okay. anything. That was poorly stated, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Some people who've used a telescope uh, are suspicious of this. So the Kepler, the Kepler telescope has been used in the last 10 or 15 years to discover literally hundreds of what are called exoplanets, planets around other stars. And the way that we do this is that we look at these stars, and the Kepler telescope is so designed and it is so, so well designed and it can detect a dimming of a star just from a planet passing in front of it. So if it so happens that we're looking at a star and a planet around that star passes in front of it, we can see the dimming of the star. And it's not just a star getting a little bit dimmer. It's, it's actually a, a very specific way that the star gets dimmer. We can measure uh, lots of things about this phenomenon. We, we produce what's called a light curve. And by studying the light curve, we can tell... Uh, not only that, yeah, okay, something made the star a little bit dimmer for a minute there, but we can tell how big the planet might be, how far from its star it might be, lots of different things about it. Um, and recently, a very strange thing happened. We, we found a light curve that at first, you know, at first blush could be uh, just a planet passing in front of a star, but actually the strange thing is that this planet, this planet doesn't appear to be round. And most planets are round, so that's very strange. And several theories have been put forward to explain the strange light curve that we've observed uh, when we look at this particular star and observe this particular object passing in front of it. And one by one, a lot of these theories, a lot of the first guesses, maybe uh, comets or uh, some sort of planetary collision, a lot of these guesses have been debunked. And one of the remaining guesses is the most exciting, which is that it's actually an alien megastructure passing in front of the star. Like the Death Star? <laughs> Similar to the Did Death Star. Did the Kepler Star. telescope find the Death Star? <laughs> it's, it's too early to tell, but possibly. Yeah, what, what's, uh, what's hypothesized is, is not a Death Star, but something called a Dyson Sphere, named after the physicist and mathematician Freeman Dyson, uh, who talked about... Was that the same that, man who invented the vacuum cleaner? <laughs> I don't believe it was the same person. Okay, okay, just, just But clarify. he did study objects that live in a vacuum. Ha, <laughs> ah, nice one. I see what you did there. Smart. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so a Dyson Sphere is a theoretical device for a, a civilization to completely capture all of the energy emitted by its host star. So, for example, if we were to build a Dyson Star, it would be a Dyson Sphere. It would surround the sun. Think of, think of just giant solar panels completely surrounding the sun so that we could use, we could absorb and use every ounce of energy that the sun puts out. This is the idea of a Dyson Sphere, that the energy needs of an advanced civilization continue to increase and increase without bound, and eventually they're going to capture all the energy of their whole star. And one theory as to what we're seeing with the Kepler telescope right now is that we're seeing one of two things, either a Dyson Sphere in the making, one that's uh, being built, or, a little more uh, ominously, a Dyson Sphere decaying, one that was built. Uh, but whose civilization has somehow perished. And so a Dyson Sphere is, only, is not naturally occurring. It's never naturally occurring. It has to be built by someone or something. Someone or something, uh, or many, many ones. Um, <laughs> so a, a Dyson Sphere would be, uh, if it's possible to build one, then it would be a project for an entire civilization spanning hundreds of thousands of years. Wow. Uh, it, it would not be the sort of thing that... Uh, 
any civilization that I could imagine could build easily. It would be a very, uh, very, very big project. Uh, and what's the, what's the likelihood that it is a Dyson sphere? Well, that's very hard to estimate. Um, I think the reason people are so excited that it could be a Dyson sphere or part of a Dyson sphere is simply that uh, there doesn't seem to be another explanation right at hand. And even a few uh, well-respected big-name astronomers have been willing to speculate that this could be what's going on here. Uh, but, you know, more realistically, less uh, funly, uh, it's probably some astronomical phenomenon that we just haven't really seen that much. Before. The Kepler telescope just got a particle of dust on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, that sort of thing was put forward as an explanation. Of course, you know, if you see something really, really, really strange, uh, maybe, maybe there's something strange out there. Maybe there's something wrong with the way you're looking. And so we've, we've triple-checked and quadruple-checked that the telescope is in working order. And we've made, uh, you know, multiple observations of this phenomenon. It really does seem to be a real phenomenon. Yeah, that's really exciting. So were you one of the civilian scientists that got to observe the, the te- Kepler telescope's findings? I'm not one of those amateur astronomers uh, that's gotten involved in this project. I've, I've read about it and kept track of it a little bit in the news, but I haven't... Uh, I haven't gotten directly involved in, uh, in the observational process. So, Will, talk to me about the Fermi paradox. As I understand it, this basically postulates the question of why we've not observed life in the universe if there is an almost infinite number of galaxies and planets in those galaxies. Why haven't we seen any life? Sure. Yeah, that's, that's well stated. That is the Fermi paradox right there. The paradox is simply that we don't see any aliens, but... Any calculations that we do, based on all the science we know, seem to suggest that we really should. Um, so, so this is a conundrum. The conundrum is, is uh, that even within our galaxy, now there are billions of galaxies in the known universe. The known universe is, is so incredibly vast. It has a 90 billion light year diameter. Uh, it's it's unfathomably huge. And even within our Milky Way, just, just our own galaxy right here, there are... I may get the number wrong, but I want to say there are around 400 billion stars. Wow. It might be 400 trillion. <laughs> so I could be off by three zeros. I really can't remember <laughs> off the top of my head. But at a certain but, point, it doesn't even matter. I was going to make this exactly. point that when people talk about the vast enormity of space, it, to me, it it's so incomprehensible that yeah. just, I mean, tack on a few extra zeros if you want it's or take a few off. It doesn't really matter to me. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. That's right. In the same way that people don't understand the difference in wealth between... Uh, you know, the owner of a football team and the owner of Microsoft. It's, it's hard to understand the difference between 400 billion and 400 trillion. It's, uh, those numbers are so incredibly huge that uh, we hear a number like that and we just think, yeah, okay, too many to count. And, and it's true. There are too many stars to count. And most of these stars, um, or I shouldn't say most, a lot of these stars are very similar to our own star, very similar to our sun. Our sun is very average. There's nothing very uh, particularly special about the sun. And of the hundreds of millions of stars that are essentially just like the sun, lots of them, I think at least 10 million, uh, we estimate, have a planet kind of like Earth right in the habitable zone of the star. Habitable zone meaning not too close where uh, the planet would be boiling hot all the time and not too far away where it'll be a chunk of ice all the time. But in in the zone where you could have liquid water, you could have... uh, uh, pleasant atmosphere, you know, all the things that are conducive to life as we know it. We have tens of millions of locations in our galaxy that have, as far as we know, conditions that are extremely conducive to the development of life. So, if modern science is correct, and if we understand even roughly how life is supposed to arise, uh, then it seems that there should be life all over the galaxy. So why don't we see any aliens? Why, why, why don't we observe any of this life uh, all over the galaxy? That's the Fermi paradox, because there should be millions upon millions of planets that are teeming with life, and we haven't found any. Or they haven't found us, I should say. So what are some possible answers to this question? Well, there are a few possible answers to this question, uh, and they have varying degrees of, of scariness. Uh, so... When I say scariness, you, you do have to consider the possibility that uh, the reason we don't see aliens is either that um, perhaps they're camouflaging themselves, 
in which case you have to ask camouflaging themselves from what um, I think that if you're uh, if, if you're put into a strange environment and you see that everything is trying to hide uh, that's that's very frightening of course you wonder what they're hiding from and whether or not you should be hiding too and uh, you know, if if things are hiding, that means there's something scary. It's like so the if, dumb gazelle on the African safari who's like, "Hey guys, what are you all running from?" <laughs> right. Yeah, we could be that dumb gazelle. That's absolutely. Guys, it's so nice over here. There's water. <laughs> so so maybe maybe the aliens are hiding, and if that's the case, we should probably be worried because they're probably hiding for a reason. We should probably hide too. Uh, maybe the aliens aren't hiding. Maybe they're dead. Maybe if we find any alien civilization, it will be the ruins of an alien civilization. And what that tells us is that our own probability of survival is extremely low. Because if there have been millions of, of civilizations that have all risen and fallen in our galaxy, then there's no reason to think that we should be so particularly special that we're going to be the one uh, that lasts through whatever it is that's, uh, that's causing all of these civilizations to crumble. Um, you know, already, of, of course, you see in our entertainment and uh, especially here in Texas where I live, lots of people who talk about the apocalypse. Whatever the apocalypse is going to look like, it could be some sort of virus that we create or that we unearth from polar ice caps. It could be some sort of nuclear war. I, I don't know. It could be something that we haven't even imagined. But lots of people are strangely excited about the idea that we could all destroy ourselves one day. Well, this is an uplifting conversation. <laughs> Just right. took a very dark well, turn. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. So, so that's another possibility, is that these aliens are, are simply uh, dead, extinct, and that we probably will be too. A third possibility is that, uh, that they're being exterminated, that perhaps uh, there is an extremely advanced civilization out there, uh, what one would call a Kardashev III civilization. We could talk more about that in a minute if you like. Uh, but the idea is that if there is a super race of aliens out there that's so powerful that they essentially control the galaxy, they might be letting us develop to a point because we're not bothering them yet. But as, a, as soon as we get big enough to challenge them in any way, they may just eliminate us. Or maybe as soon as, uh, as, soon as we get big enough to have developed our planet to a certain point, maybe they'll cannibalize us. To has, anyone, has anyone considered the possibility that a grumpy, vengeful Klingon might come back and try to inject red matter into the core of Earth, perhaps? <laughs> that is a possibility that I have not encountered in any serious literature, but okay. there's okay. a really cool movie about that, <laughs> and I highly recommend it. So uh, what what civilization was it that you mentioned? Something about a Kajakarv 3 or something? The something. super race. Kardashev. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kardashev, so, that one. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So there's a scale called the Kardashev scale uh, that's, I would say, extremely speculative, for measuring the development of civilizations. And the idea is that we, we uh, measure a civilization's progress by the amount of energy that it requires. Um, and this may not be a very enlightened way of looking at things, right? I mean, a lot of our uh, effort in, our current in, the, in the current development of our civilization is going into making things more energy efficient, making them smaller and faster and yet last longer on less, right? Uh, so we're trying to use less energy all the time. So maybe a super advanced civilization doesn't necessarily need a huge amount of energy. But if they do, and this is the premise of the Kardashev scale, then we can measure the, the uh, advancement of the civilization based on how much energy it's using. Now, Kardashev 1 means that a civilization has gotten to the point where it harnesses all of the energy that enters its planet from its host star. All right, so we're not there yet. Right? We, we harness a fraction of the energy that the sun pours into the Earth all the time. Uh, without getting too technical as to where this number comes from, we're about Kardashev 0.73 at the moment. So we haven't even reached level one yet. Wow. L That's embarrassing. Come on, humans. It's let's a little let's do this. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> level two is a civilization that's able to harness all of the energy that its host star produces. Uh, so this is the idea that I mentioned earlier of a Dyson sphere. The idea is that you can surround the star with some sort of megastructure that's designed to capture all of the energy that star outputs so that the, uh, the civilization in question can have a nearly unlimited, or at least from our perspective, an unlimited amount of energy. Of course, it is limited. It's limited by the size and the output of the star. But any star outputs an absolutely vast amount of energy. It and, seems to um, me, though, that if you are 
at the level of a civilization where you can build a Dyson sphere, mm-hmm. which is a sphere that's big enough to encompass an entire star, mm-hmm. then the energy of this star wouldn't actually be all that massive relative to what you would need to fuel, right? I don't know. Uh, stars are really big and really hot. <laughs> so our sun, for example, um, if you were to let all the power plants currently in existence on the Earth run at full blast for 7 million years, you would produce the amount of energy that the sun outputs every second. If you could capture all of that energy, uh, you would be able to have access to millions upon millions of times uh, the power that our civilization uses currently. Wow. It's a lot of power. Um, I think we lose, we lose an appreciation for exactly how powerful stars are because we're so far away from ours. 95 million miles is a very, very, very long way. And, and yet I can still get a sunburn by going outside. Um, you know, if, if you can capture all of the energy that's coming out of the sun, that's an absolutely unbelievable amount of energy. And so I think that uh, even to a very advanced civilization, one that's able to begin construction of something like a Dyson sphere, it would still be a huge amount of energy. So final question, Will, what do you think are the philosophical or theological implications of the possibility that there does exist alien life? Sure. Uh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> and I think there's... You have 15 little, seconds. 15 seconds. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, interestingly, uh, C.S. Lewis, everyone's uh, favorite Protestant theologian, wrote on this question. Um, he loved space. He was a space nut. I don't know if you've read his space trilogy. I read uh, That Hideous Strength. That but Hideous Strength. Okay, yeah. yeah, good. Good. Uh, well, there are two more. And um, anyway, he, he was a space nut, and he wrote about this question. And one of the most interesting speculations that he engaged in was uh, the possibility of encountering an alien race that has not fallen. Um, so an alien race that hasn't experienced something like the fall. Uh, now, if we did encounter a race like that, it may be that we would somehow contaminate them, that we could introduce them to sin, and that we could cause them to fall. We could be the snake in their garden, so to speak, uh, which, which would be a horrible thing. Uh, I don't think that's anything that we would want, but it's a possibility. Uh, another possibility is that uh, we encounter another race uh, that has fallen, uh, but perhaps has been redeemed in some sort of way, uh, whether or not it's the same as us, whether uh, it's different from us, who knows. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting thing to speculate about. But aside from that, I, I think it, the implications are emotional. Uh, it would be just a very interesting thing to find that we're not, in fact, alone in the universe, that there are other creatures out there with whom we can interact, uh, maybe form peace with, maybe have war with, who knows. But uh, I think it would be it would just make the world a little bit bigger and more interesting. I'm not sold on the existence of alien life, though. I mean, I think the Fermi paradox for for me captures pretty well a question that I've been wondering for years, just why haven't we seen anything? I mean, this SETI program, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence out of Colorado, I think it's been around since 1984, broadcasting very powerful signals and listening very carefully for others. It's heard, it's heard nothing. So I'm not sold. Will, though, I'm curious, do you think there's alien life? If you had to had to come down one way or the other. If I had to come down one way or the other, I would guess that there is alien life when it comes to things like microbes, uh, perhaps even something analogous to plants. When I say analogous to what I mean is that I, don't, I wouldn't expect something on a different planet to necessarily fit into uh, any of our phylogenic categories. Taxonomic, sorry, not sure. phylogenic. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily... Uh, expect it to be a plant, but, you know, something perhaps that, that sits there and absorbs energy and digests some dirt or whatever, uh, maybe even small animals. I, I'm not willing to make the leap and say that I believe there are intelligent species in the night scale. So aliens, yes, uh, I could very easily imagine that. Intelligent races other than our own, I don't know. I, I remain skeptical, but would be happily pr- proved wrong. Sally, what do you think? I didn't know you were going to ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. I think that if they were intelligent to our level or above, that they would also be wanting to communicate with us in some way. 
and find other such races. And since we haven't really heard any communications from them, I don't think they exist. What do you think? I also don't think so. Okay. Oh, you already said that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Will. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. It was a lot of fun to talk to you. We'll have to uh, queue up some other good science conversations for next time. Maybe we can talk about uh, alternate universes. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. Right. Welcome back to Vernacular. We are joined by Joshua DeGastian, who's one of our contributors to the podcast. So our listeners who have heard other episodes of Vernacular will recognize Joshua. Joshua, welcome to the show. Great to be here. It's always great to have you, man. Today, we're going to talk about something pretty interesting. Uh, Joshua actually let us know that he'd like to come on the show and talk about this. And we said, what is that? So we looked it up. <laughs> uh, the topic is nootropics. What, which is uh, not N E W, but N O O. Right, and important uh, distinction. Very, <laughs> very important distinction. I kind of thought maybe it had to do with rainforests or something like tropics. Right, the new hmm. tropics. Yeah, but yeah, the unexplored parts I of the tropics. Yeah. Read lots about it and realized it was about drugs. <laughs> right, and and drugs is maybe a little bit misleading. Yeah, true. Uh, some might call them nutrients or vitamins, but the bottom line here is new tropics are nutrients or vitamins or drugs to enhance brain performance. So Joshua, tell us more about nootropics. Absolutely. Everything you all have said so far is accurate. Except for the tropical rainforest that part. <laughs> no one knows what it means. <laughs> um, and it's still a very brand new thing to the public at large. Some background is that the word nuos from the Greek N-O-O-S uh, actually means mind. Um, so that kind of nootropics is basically a type of pharmaceutical enhancement of the mind. It was coined over 40 years ago, um, but again, like I said, it's still only very recently like a public product. And where does the tropics come in? What does that mean? Um, you know, beats me. We could <laughs> so Google mind it right tropics. <laughs> but so, for, as I understand it, there, as you said, they're a type of cognitive enhancement. They're not. There's, they're a subtype of cognitive enhancers, right? So, so the distinction is that nootropics have to have zero to, or a few to zero side effects. Is that right? To characterize them as a nootropic? Right. So if you want some of the industry insider language here, we can jump into that. Um, they're generally called stacks. Um, and there are lots of different combinations of stacks you can make or order. Um, so literally most of these companies that are popular, Optimine, Nutrobox, are all very different combinations. Uh, so Optimine is specifically a combination of 12 different chemicals, um, but the Nutrobox company does all their branding based on function-specific items. So one is called Rise, one is called Sprint, and one is called Yawn. So it's basically something to help you wake up, help you... Um, get through a really intense uh, like study session, and then optimize sleeping. Um, so some people are trying to create a one ultimate pill, um, and that's the one I've been trying recently. So two or three of the main, out of the 12 components of this one, are L-taurine. Um, you might have heard of different energy drinks that are already Yeah, isn't taurine more powerful than caffeine? Yes. So generally, um, and a lot of people, again, have uh, misconceived notions um, of what it really means. Yes, Taurus means bull. And yes, this chemical was initially isolated from a bull so that we could um, understand it. But it it comes from bile. And for some reason, a lot of people thought it was... uh, it was just bull urine that they were sticking oh. in these drinks and selling uh-huh. to the public. Uh, but no, it, we actually don't. But do no, that. It's, it's, it's totally, it's totally cool. <laughs> but no, it, it's great um, stuff, guys. <laughs> it, it's been explored as a glucose alternative, actually. So looked into as a potential treatment for diabetics um, as a type of dialysis. We know that it um, can prevent oxidative stress, um, and it's an anxiolytic, which means it can help against prevent against anxiety attacks. And that it also um, 
is essential to long-term potentiation in the hippocampus, which is just a fancy scientific way of saying it enhances a specific type of memory encoding in the brain. Hmm. I do prefer enhanced long-term potentiation in my hippocampus. <laughs> I must say. I'm, I'm there with you 100%. Yeah. So caffeine is not a nootropic because it would have side effects, right? Negative side effects. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, so by definition, um, caffeine is something that uh, very quickly wears off. Uh, there's no necessarily uh, long-term uh, positive effect, even though also like so all of these are disputed, right? Um, a lot of people go into science because they don't like um, politics, and then they're frustrated to find out there's a <laughs> lot of politics in science as well. So there actually has been um, a few years. Uh, like right before I started doing a science fair project in this area in high school, there was a big paper published basically saying caffeine prevents Parkinson's disease. And like no one had any idea what they were talking about, but it was actually shown to have a protective effect if you take it in the right amounts earlier in your life um, compared to people who had it. By the way, I found out what tropic means. Uh, it comes from the Greek tropos, which basically means turning, changing, or tending to turn or change. So something that turns or changes the so mind. alters, mind altering. Right. Mind or mind turning. Yeah. Mind turning. Interesting. Yeah. Which makes it sound even better, right? Because it just sounds like mind control. Yes. Right. <laughs> now, I saw a movie about this called Limitless. I'm sure many of you have seen this. So how realistic is Limitless, Joshua? Um, good question. I actually have not seen Limitless. Oh my gosh. Um, it's so good. Bradley Cooper is amazing. I know. I actually, uh, several friends make fun of me for this because I refuse to go see movies like Limitless. Because basically during the whole movie, I'm critiquing the science of it and saying, you know, that's not possible. Right, or right, yeah. They're totally misinterpreting that. And so that's why I talk about it on podcasts instead. <laughs> Okay, so different angle here. Joshua, you're obviously taking a 12-drug cocktail of nootropics <laughs> from Optimind, you said? Correct. So you obviously don't have a problem with the ethics of nootropics. You mentioned taurine's been looked at for diabetics as a substitute for dialysis or a substitute for glucose. Um, but you're not diabetic, right? You're, I mean, you're not, a, you're not an unhealthy person. So Correct. So why are you taking a drug that would affect your mind? That is a great question. And the short answer is, uh, I'm in medical school now. Um, I'm looking for uh, a lot of ways uh, that I could improve my study habits or um, stay alert for longer, be able to retain information, but also do it in a healthy way, combined with my sleep schedule, my exercise schedule, and social life. Um, so one of the things that we're discussing, since we are taking a clinical ethics class along with our other biomedical science classes, um, is the use of uh, these types of drugs. Um, There's a very popular paper published in 2008 in Nature when neuroscientists were first looking at this and this argument came to a head. It is called Towards Responsible Use of Cognitive Enhancing Drugs by the Healthy. Um, researchers like Michael Gazaniga and I think actually a lot of these guys are out on uh, the West Coast um, or in England, um, hardly any here. But um, the basic conclusion is approach with caution. Um, but that mainly means that they don't know the whole profession um, that I'm in, and it's something frustrating for me who likes to push the envelope and be somewhat entrepreneurial and blog about ideas and see what could happen very quickly. Um, and I can totally understand from where they are after having treated hundreds, maybe thousands of patients, uh, they're hesitant to say anything until they know for sure. Um, but I feel like with the right, uh, if you're not trying to be misleading, uh, if you give information and always caveat it with the right, um, the right answers, uh, then you're not intentionally misleading anyone. 
Uh, and th this quote that I'll just end that thought with is from one of these guys running uh, these companies. His name is Dave Asprey, founder of the Bulletproof Executive. <laughs> and this quote says, going back a million years, humans had fire. One guy used it to stay warm. And the other said, that's cheating. One of those guys is our ancestor and one is not. Okay. So I read that quote as well. And I, I think I feel differently about it than you do. Um, I think it's a classic example of what I would call the tech or what others have called and that I call the technocratic imperative that because we can do something, we should do it. And that seems to be what he's implying that if we have it available to us, fire or nootropics, we should do it. And without regard for possible future consequences. Um, so I, I think that's an ethically flawed premise if that's what he's operating on and if that's what you're operating on. That is a great place to start the discussion. And I know that ethical conversation could go a lot longer. But the one thing I'd add to that is a simple test that one of my favorite uh, Christian writers uses. So C.S. Lewis, towards the conclusion of The Abolition of Man, uh, talks about um, humans who think they're conquering nature and how usually it winds up having the opposite or reverse effect. And a simple test you can use, um, whether it's with new technology or um, any ethical dilemma, really, you should stop and ask yourself, will this make me more human? Will this make us as a society more human or less human? And obviously a lot that's a of great these question. are dual-use technologies. Yeah, and so any technology created like this, you're right, can be used um, in damaging ways, uh, could hurt society. A lot of people using it for the wrong motive, doing it in an unhealthy way could obviously be destructive. And so it's just like um, with, with alcohol, the way we use alcohol is, can obviously very be very damaging and disruptive. But in a free society where people have the right to choose that, there will be some people like Benjamin Franklin who said, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. So the first thing is, Dave, what's what's his name? Asprey. 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 He's bulletproof coffee, right? That yeah. Guy? Okay. So he makes this rhetorical, you know, flourish about one guy using fire and the other not. He tries to use analogical reasoning, and I think he does it kind of poorly. And I'm not saying that he's wrong on the issue of nootropics necessarily, but uh, his analogy is pretty poor because nootropics are not something that enable us to survive a cold winter, right? That's what fire did. Uh, fire also helped us learn how to clean our food uh, before we ate it by cooking it. Uh, that's not what nootropics do. So nootropics don't enable these basic life functions that help us survive, uh, like fire, so I think Dave's a little bit misguided in that. I mean, it, it makes his point powerfully. I just think it makes it poorly. So it's kind of a potent analogy, but a poor one. It's kind of funny, right? How, I mean, you pointed out very well that it's just basically something to solve first world problems. Yeah, I guess that is pretty accurate, first world problems. But I was going to say, you know, on your point about is it making us more human or less human, what type of lifestyles do, do nootropics enable? You know, are are these are these types of drugs or nutrients or vitamins, whatever we want to call them, are these consumed regularly by people who are living balanced lives? You know, people who go to work eight hours a day and come home to spend four to six hours with their family before they go to sleep for eight hours and then rise to do it all over again, um, or are these consumed by people who need to fuel uh, these ridiculous, you know, all nighters? Uh, who are workaholics, who are not spending time outside of work with people who mean uh, a lot to them. So I, I, I guess I really kind of question, you know, going back to your point about the, the C.S. Lewis question, do these uh -huh. enable us to be more or less human? And I think really what it might come down to is not the ethics of the drug per se, but the ethics of how the drugs are used. Um, but if they're used with an intent to enable an, an imbalanced life, then maybe they're not so good. And I have trouble seeing ways in which they could be utilized uh, in a different way. Yeah, Zach, I think that is a fantastically valid critique. And it's actually not hard to pick up on in their marketing at all. They are shameless about marketing directly to 
um, young men who are workaholics, they're coders. If you go to the front page of the Nutribox website, their 60-second intro video is just a guy sitting at a computer. Like, basically, he looks calm, but you can tell he's, like, working on something intense. And the specifically with Optimind, it, it came, I opened this little box that it comes in, which looks all fancy, and there's a postcard with a quote on the front from Andrew Carnegie. And if this doesn't um, help you realize their intentions, then nothing will. But the quote is, the man who acquires the ability to take full possession of his own mind may take possession of anything else. That's a little scary. Justly entitled. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think too, that if we're talking about how they're used and thinking about not just are we becoming more human, but are we contributing to a more human and humane society? Um, I think that social equity is is something to think about too, that who are the people who have access to these nootropics and is it going to create kind of an imbalance in our society that it's going to be the high rollers, the corporate attorneys and corporate strategists and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and David Asprey's of the world who are taking these and other people who, or, you know, kids in college who are bankrolled by their parents, and then other people who don't have enough money or access to these drugs, they, you know, they're, they're not going to have access. And so there's going to be some sort of, I don't know, imbalance. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because I mean, there's always going to be inequities, right? In, mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, I can afford healthcare that others can't and others can afford healthcare that I can't. Um, so I think that's a problem that's not going to go away. But I think Sally's really onto something here, especially we joked about limitless, right? But it's conceivable that 100 years in the future, nootropics will have advanced to a degree that drugs can enable that type of immense, ridiculous productivity. And at that point, you know, when the drugs have that type of a dramatic effect, what types of, you know, social divides will we see in terms of who can access them, and how that will enable uh, increasing disparity between the haves and the have nots. I also think it's kind of too early to tell if these are in and of themselves healthy because I know you can use them to varying degrees, um, but, but we don't know all of the side effects yet. And, and I mean, we don't know, not all of them have been FDA regulated and checked out by the FDA. So we don't know exactly how, whether or not they're going to hurt us from a medical standpoint. Also from a medical standpoint, I think that some people might be using nootropics when they really should be handling the root causes of their problems. Like maybe they're depressed, maybe they're sleep deprived, maybe they should exercise more. Maybe, maybe they don't they have a balanced better. life and they're right. workaholics. Yeah. And maybe that's why right. they have mental fatigue or, you know, something like that. I mean, obviously Joshua, you're taking this in, in the midst of a balanced life with exercise and social, um, outlets and so forth. But I doubt most people are. <laughs> I absolutely agree that drugs should never be used as a Band-Aid and, you know, packaging these as a supplement and marketing it in a way that, you know, can encourage uh, unhealthy uses of it is obviously um, maybe not the best thing to do. Thankfully, all of the individual ingredients in these are FDA approved, Okay. Um, but you are correct that they have not um, been, you know, they go. They haven't gone through the eight-year pipeline that costs millions of dollars to sure. approve. For a lot of small company entrepreneurs that only have five employees, um, they can't handle that. So they just are starting by getting it to the people who will use it, uh, collecting testimonial, testimonials, starting to collect data. Um, and who knows, one day maybe doctors uh, will be prescribing it in limited situations. Um, but you're right. It's never a cure-all. It never exempts you from uh, living a life, um, contributing to uh, a flourishing civil society. Um, and you're right, going home to spend time with your family at the end of each day. So Joshua, you mentioned that you're taking it, but I think you said it's a trial, um, a trial version. So one, have you noticed a difference while you're on this, uh, this supplement regimen? And two, do you think you're going to continue? Yeah, absolutely. So as with um, something we discussed last time um, I came on the vernacular podcast, I try to ease into anything new like this uh, slowly. So I started Soylent slowly. I also started this slowly, only taking one pill um, you know, at a time and then waiting a whole week uh, to take 
another one, even though they say it's safe to take two or three a day. Um, and over the past couple days, when I was studying for a big test um, that actually happened yesterday, I had worked up um, to taking um, one a day, and I just did that for three days in a row um, when I was studying for about eight hours a day. Um, and the amount of sleep I needed went down to about four hours a day. Like, I, I'd never got jittery, but wow. I would lie down and just not be able to sleep because my mind was, you know, going over these um, chemistry thoughts and patterns and the genetics I was studying. And I had the energy to get up and run, to get up and write some more, to um, basically do whatever I needed to do. And sometimes it's more than you need, <laughs> which is why you, you need to find a balance that's uh, appropriate for you. Was that kind of scary or, I mean, did that feel unnatural? Yeah. So the first time I took it, um, exact same as Soylent. If your body is not used to it, <laughs> you can't handle it very well. So I actually had um, a little bit of headache and nausea uh, the first time I took it um, and had had not eaten like in the two hours before I took it, which was probably a mistake. Um, but you learn over time um, how your body is supposed to use it, how it should fit into your meal schedule and your exercise schedule, and it's been working out a lot better. So speaking of Soylent, how's that going? And just, just for our listeners, Soylent is a powdered food replacement that you mix in with uh, liquid, and it provides or it claims to provide all of the essential calories, protein, carbs, uh, other nutrients and vitamins that you need to fully replace food, real solid food. Absolutely. So yeah, anyone who needs more details on it can go get that other one um, from season one. I'm so excited you guys are already in season two um, or check out the website or his interview on Stephen Colbert. He's an interesting guy. But um, yeah, so for me, uh, my summary is it kind of tastes like sweet oatmeal. Zach, you might disagree with that. Um, but I do uh, combine it with a few other things uh, like whey protein right after workouts or sometimes creatine before a workout. And um, it, it's been a great experience for me. I've been using it uh, for about six months and I've been using it for about the past three months to fully um, replace about two out of my three meals a day. So I get over... Um, always over a thousand and sometimes over 1500 calories a day just from Soylent. That's impressive. So I'm a Soylent guy now, uh, which I never thought I'd say those words. I just decided I would try it for a month. Uh, and I'm not going to do it for another month cause I, I do not <laughs> like it so far. I've had it probably <laughs> but about you're not mixing in anything else too, right? Right, right. I've d done it about two weeks now. Um, I use it just to replace my lunches while I'm at work. Um, and it, tastes terrible. It doesn't leave me feeling <laughs> satisfied. I get hungry earlier when I have it. So I'm not going to be pressing on with Soylent, but it was an interesting experiment. And, um, yeah, I guess I can't say I'm, I'm, uh, regretting the decision to try it at least, but everyone in my office thinks I'm really weird. <laughs> I'm glad you gave it a go. And now at least you know what the hype is about and that there's not that much to be excited about. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. That was good to find out. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Joshua, and thanks for giving us this primer on nootropics. Of course. It's always great to catch up with you guys. Yeah, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks so much. Yeah, take care. You too. Bye. All right, we're back to close out vernacular podcast after this fantastic episode talking to three of our contributors. Yeah, it's I feel like I've learned so much, especially about nootropics, which I had never heard of before. Yeah, I mean, I'd heard of supplements that were designed to boost brain function, focus, etc. But I didn't know it was such a booming market in uh, for startups. And uh, yeah, I, I'm still thinking through the ethical implications of this stuff. Yeah, it's really complicated. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I already made my point about how I think nootropics can encourage us to lead imbalanced lives, so I have that issue with them. And I don't want to sound like a Luddite at all, uh, but I also think that these things are very unproven and untested, so it's not just a question of whether or not the FDA's approved them. I think we understand so little about the human brain uh, that 
it might be irresponsible to go about trying to improve the functioning of an already healthy brain, right? As, as we said with Joshua, these aren't about bringing people back to health, but they're about enhancing the healthy. So that's kind of an interesting angle on it too. Uh, yeah, we, could we wear out our brains faster? Yeah, potentially. Yeah, that's essentially what happens in Limitless. So, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, I haven't seen that. <laughs> but yeah, very fascinating conversation. I am interested to see where the use of nootropics takes us in the future. But it's time for our inbox, right? Yes, Let- we have. Will we need to check it? And All right. We'll see if we let's have check anything. the inbox. All right, yay, we have correspondence. And today we have heard from Teresa, mm. and she says that Zach, she would drink pumpkin milk. So oh, man, that's That was our one bold. thing that we thought that no one would want, but she would drink pumpkin milk. She loves pumpkin that much. Would it be sweet, do you think? Pumpkin milk? Yeah. Uh, there already is a little bit of natural sugars in milk. So, so would it yes. be beyond that, or would it just be... Um, I think because pumpkin would, is not like strawberry. It would strawberry. be like any milk, I think, where you have like the unsweetened and the sweetened variety, like unsweetened almond milk or sweetened almond oh, milk. Oh, yeah. That's what I think anyways. So I wonder what Teresa would drink, unsweetened or sweetened. I don't know. Teresa, what do you think? Let <laughs> us know. Speaking of letting us know, we have an editorial question for our listeners this week. Do you think that alien life, uh, correction, intelligent alien life exists? Yeah. So not the plants, the microbes. Right. I don't care if there's like chicken pox viruses floating around in space. <laughs> Do you think that intelligent alien life exists and why? Ooh, I like it. Yeah. That's so cool. shoot us an email with your thoughts on that. We'll share them on the show and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Yeah. And I guess that wraps up episode five. I think it does. It's been a lot of fun though. Thank you once again for listening and stay tuned for episode six Which coming is out. also going to be really good. Yes, it is. So, so excited. All right. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Feeling better than ever When I'm by your side